Uh, tonight's session, we're going to get to hear from one of America's most incendiary writers, a man who's revolutionised television as we know it. He's going to give a talk, uh, then if I can contain myself, we'll have a conversation for a while, and then we're going to throw proceedings over to you uh, for a chance to ask questions. Also, you people back there, don't think I'm not paying you attention. I totally am. Um, uh, if you are going to ask a question, can you make your way to a microphone? This session is being filmed uh, for both the Opera House and the NSA, uh, so we're keen to capture uh, everything you have to say. So welcome to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas 2013 opening night event. Uh, some people are more equal than others. Once upon a time, if you'd been looking for a dangerous idea, the last place you would have looked was television. Entertainment and corporate interests as your guiding principles are hardly a recipe for risk or social challenge. But times have changed and David Simon isn't your average television writer. The self-proclaimed angriest man in America, Simon's writing comes from the same place as his many years of journalism, a place of deep humanism and an unflinching sense of justice and injustice. Born in Washington, he moved to Baltimore in 1983 to work as a crime reporter at the Baltimore Sun. Uh, that was a post he held for 12 years. While at the paper, he reported and wrote two works of narrative non-fiction, Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets, and The Corner, A Year in the Life of an Inner City Neighbourhood. The former was an account of a year spent with the city homicide squad, the latter a year spent on a West Baltimore drug corner. But it was in translating these books to television that David Simon became known to a wider audience. Anyone who's seen The Wire or any of the other TV he's been involved with, Homicide, The Corner, Generation Kill and Treme, knows the accolades are deserved and there's no writer working today better place to talk about the fundamental inequalities of American society. Uh, before I welcome him to the stage, I'm going to just leave off uh, with uh, some words from the writer and sometime David Simon collaborator Richard Price. Uh, he wrote an introduction to the re-release of Homicide a Year on the Killing Streets. And the introduction ended as follows. All of which is to say that if Edith Wharton came back from the dead, developed a bent for municipal power brokers, cops, crackheads and reportage, and didn't really care what she wore to the office, she'd probably look a lot like David Simon. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome David Simon. Don't mind kills. Don't kills. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, my father, who passed away a few years ago, he had some, some very specific words for me. He said, kid, if you're ever invited to speak at the Sydney Opera House, for God's sakes, wear a tie and a jacket and some sensible shoes. Not sneakers. And uh, don't curse. Don't curse like you always curse. You're not in the newsroom anymore. Talk right. Uh, unfortunately, I'm under uh, contract to HBO. <laughs> so every 13th, 14th word has to be a profanity. So if you were hoping for uh, a certain amount of decorum and dignity in this fine room, you're fucked. Um, sorry. Um, my title was chosen for me. Uh, I read it at some point when the materials were printed, and I thought, huh. They gave me the, uh, the ultimate betrayal line from, from Orwell, from, from Animal Farm. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Porcine Poet Bureau's uh, last twist of the knife. 
Um, I assume they want me to speak uh, uh, to treat that sardonically, that I'm not, I'm not going to be defending that notion of inequality. And I'm going to go that way. So if you were here to, to in the hopes of hearing uh, certain members of our, uh, of our human tribe lauded over, over others, uh, I've, I'm going to ruin your evening. Um, yes, it is true that I, I come from a country that is now utterly schizophrenic when it comes to uh, its uh, society, its, its economy, its politics. Um, there are definitely two Americas. I live in, in one, on one block in Baltimore that is part of the viable America, the, 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 the America that's connected uh, to its own economy, uh, where there is a plausible future for the people born into it. About 20 blocks away uh, is another America entirely. It's astonishing how little we have to do with each other, and yet uh, we live in such proximity. Um, there's no barbed wire around West Baltimore or around East Baltimore or around Pimlico, the areas that are in my city that have been utterly divorced from the American experience that, I'm, that I know. But there might as well be. Um, we've somehow managed to, to, to march on uh, to two separate futures. And I think you're seeing this more and more in the West. Um, I don't think it's unique to America. I think uh, we've perfected a lot of the tragedy, uh, and, and, we, and we're getting there faster uh, than a lot of other places that maybe are, are a little more reasoned. But um, my dangerous idea, aside from the shoes, um, my dangerous idea <clears throat> kind of involves... This fellow who got left by the wayside in the 20th century uh, and, and seemed to be almost uh, the butt end of the joke of the 20th century, uh, named, named Karl Marx. Um, I'm not a Marxist uh, in the sense that I don't think Marxism has a very specific uh, clinical answer to what ails us economically. Um, I think he was, he was a much better diagnostician than he, he was a clinician. Uh, he was good figuring out what was wrong or what could be wrong with capitalism if it wasn't attended to. Uh, and much less uh, credible when it comes to how you might solve that. Uh, you know, if you've read Capital or if you've got the Cliff Notes, um, you know that... Uh, his imaginings of, of, of how classical Marxism, of how his logic would work uh, when applied, uh, kind of devolve into you know, such nonsense as the withering away of the state and um, platitudes like that. Um, but he was really sharp about what goes wrong when capital wins, unequivocally, when it gets everything it asks for. Um, that may be the, uh, the ultimate tragedy of capitalism in our time, which is that it has achieved uh, its dominance without regard to a social compact, without being uh, connected to any other metric for human progress. We understand profit. In my country, we measure things by profit. We listen to the Wall Street analysts. They tell us what what we're supposed to do every quarter. The quarterly report is God. Turn to face God. Turn to face Mecca. You know, did you make your number? Did you not make your number? Do you want your bonus? Do you not want your bonus? And, and that notion that the capital is the metric 
uh, the, the profit is the metric by which we're going to measure the health of our society, is one of the fundamental mistakes of the last 30 years. It begins, in, I would date it in my country to about 1980 exactly, and it has triumphed. And ultimately, the, the, the great, um, the farce of this, this, this argument that was seemingly where, where capitalism stomped the hell out of, out, of, out of Marxism by the end of the 20th century and was, was predominant in all respects, the great irony of it is that the only thing that actually works is non-ideological, uh, is impure, has elements of both arguments, and never actually achieves any kind of partisan or philosophical perfection. It's pragmatic. It includes the best aspects of socialistic thought and of, and of free market capitalism. And it works because we don't let it work entirely. And that's a hard idea to think that there isn't one single silver bullet that gets us out of the mess we've dug for ourselves, but man, we've dug a mess. You know, if you think that at World War II, the West emerged um, with the American economy, the American economy coming out of its wartime uh, extravagance, its power, uh, that it emerged as the best product. It was the best product. It worked the best. It was, it was demonstrating its might not only in terms of, of what it did during the war, but in terms of just how facile it was in creating mass wealth. Plus, it provided a lot more freedom, and it was, it was doing the one thing that guaranteed the 20th century was going to be, as they say, uh, you know, forgive the jingoistic sound of this, but in the American century. It took a working class that had no discretionary income at the beginning of the century, that was working on subsist subsistence, subsistence wages, and it made it into a consumer class that had not only money to buy all the stuff that, that they needed to live, but to buy a bunch of shit that they wanted that they didn't need. And that was the engine that drove us. It wasn't just that we could supply stuff or that we had the factories or, or, or know-how or, or capital. It was that we had we had created our own demand. And then we started exporting that demand throughout the West. And the standard of living made it possible to manufacture stuff at an incredible rate and sell it. And how did we do that? We did that by not giving in to either side. That was the New Deal. That was the Great Society. That was, that was all of that argument about collective bargaining and, and, and union wages. And, and uh, It was an argument that said, basically, neither side gets to win. Labor doesn't get to win all its arguments. Capital doesn't get to but it's in the tension, it's in the actual fight between the two that capitalism actually becomes functional. That it becomes something that every strata in society has a stake in, that they all share. The unions actually mattered. The unions were part of the equation. It didn't matter that they won all the time. It didn't matter that they lost all the time. It just mattered that they had to win some of the time and they had to put up a fight and they had to argue for the demand end of the equation and for the idea that workers were not worth less, they were worth more. And ultimately, we abandoned that. And we believed in the idea of trickle-down and, and the idea of the, the market economy 
and the market knows best, to the point where now libertarianism in my country uh, is actually being taken seriously as an intelligent mode of political thought. It's astonishing to me. Um, but it is. People are saying, I don't, I don't need anything but my own ability to earn a profit. I'm not connected to society. I don't care how the road got built. I don't care where the firefighter comes from. I don't care who educates the kids other than my kids. You know, I am me. Uh, you know, it's, it's the triumph of the self. Um, I am me, hear me roar. Um, that we've gotten to this point is astonishing to me because basically in winning its victory, so, so you know, in seeing that wall come down and seeing uh, the former uh, Stalinist states journey towards our way of thinking in terms of markets or be vulnerable, you would have thought that we would have learned what works. And instead, we've descended into what can only be described as greed. This is just greed. This is an inability to see that we're all connected. That, that the idea of two Americas is implausible as far as it goes. Or two Australias. Or two Spains or two Frances. Um, societies are, are exactly what they sound like. If everybody is invested and if everyone doesn't believe that they have some... It doesn't mean everybody's going to get the same amount. It doesn't mean every, there aren't going to be people who are the venture capitalists who stand to make the most. It doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't suggest that, you know, to each according to uh, their needs or anything that is purely Marxist. But it does say that everybody feels as if, if the society succeeds, I succeed. I don't get left behind. And there isn't a society in the West now, right now, that is able to sustain that for all of its population. And so in my country, you're seeing a horror show. You're seeing... Uh, a retrenchment in terms of family income. You're seeing the abandonment of basic services, such as public education, functional public education. You're seeing the underclass hunted through a, a war on uh, dangerous drugs, allegedly, that is in fact merely a, a war on the poor and has turned us into the most incarcerative state uh, in the history of mankind at this point in terms of just the sheer numbers of people we've put in, in American prisons and the sheer numbers of, the, the, the percentage of, of Americans we've put into prisons. No other country on the face of the earth jails people at the, at the number and rate that we are. Um, we have become uh, something other than what we claim for the American dream. And all because of our inability to basically share, to, to, to even contemplate a socialist impulse. Socialism is a dirty word in my country. I have to give that disclaimer at the beginning of every speech. Oh, by the way, I'm not a Marxist. I, I, you know, I, live in the, I live through the 20th century. I don't believe that a state-run economy can be as viable as market capitalism in producing mass wealth. I don't. I, I, I'm utterly committed to the idea of capitalism has to be the way we generate mass wealth in the coming century. That argument's over. But the idea that it's not going to be married to a social compact, that how you distribute the benefits of capitalism isn't going to include everyone in the society to a reasonable extent, that's astonishing to me. Um, and from that, capitalism is about to seize defeat from the jaws of victory all by its own hand. All by its own hand. That's the astonishing end of, of, of this story, unless we reverse course. And unless we take into consideration uh, 
if not the remedies of Marx, then the diagnosis. Because he saw what would happen if capital triumphed unequivocally, if it got everything it wanted. And one of the things that capital would want unequivocally, and for certain, is they would want labor to be diminished. They would want labor to be diminished because labor is a cost. And if labor is diminished, let's translate that in human terms. It means human beings are worth less. From this moment forward, unless we reverse course, all of us, speaking in terms of of the average person, if, if we're represented by the average person, the average human being is worth less on planet Earth. From this moment forward, unless we take stock of the fact that maybe socialism and the socialist impulse has to be addressed again. It has to be married as it was married uh, in the 30s and in the 40s and even into the 50s uh, to the engine that is capitalism. Mistaking capitalism for a, a blueprint as to how to build a society I think, to me, it strikes me as, as the, the really dangerous idea in a bad way. Capitalism is a, is a remarkable engine, again, for producing wealth. It's a great tool to have in your toolbox if you're trying to build a society and have that society advance. You wouldn't want to go forward at this point without it. But it's not a blueprint for how you, how you build a just society. There are other metrics besides that quarterly profit report that we have suggested that the market will solve such things as environmental concerns, as uh, our racial divides, as, as, our, as our class distinctions, as our, the problems with uh, educating and incorporating uh, uh, one generation of workers uh, into the economy after another when that economy is changing. The idea that it's going to heed all of the human concerns and still maximize profit is, is, is juvenile. That's a juvenile notion. And it's still being argued in my country, passionately. And we're going down the tubes. And that, it, it terrifies me because I'm astonished at how, how comfortable we are absolving ourselves of what is basically a moral choice. Are we all in this together or are we all not? Well, that, 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 if, you, if, you, if you watched the debacle that, that was and is the fight over something as basic as public health policy in my country over the last couple of years, culminating in this last bit of hilarity um, in the Congress, um, you have to be a little bit in awe that we might ever actually, I mean, imagine, imagine the ineffectiveness that, that Americans are going to pro- are going to offer the world when it comes to something really complicated like global warming. I mean, we can't even get health care for our citizens on a, on a basic level. And the argument comes down to, God damn this socialist president. Does he think I'm going to pay to keep other people healthy? That's socialism. You know, HBO contract. Motherfucker. <laughs> what do you think group health insurance is? Do you have, you know, you ask these guys, do you have group health insurance where you, oh yeah, I got, you know, my law firm, got, okay, you, you got group health, you know. So when you get sick, you're, you know, you're able to afford the treat. The, the treatment comes because you have enough people in your law firm 
that you're able to get health insurance. Enough of them stay healthy, so the actual tarils, actuarial tables work. And all of you, when you do get sick, are able to have the resources there to get better because you're relying on the idea of the, the group. Yeah, and they, they nod their heads, and you go, I, brother, that's socialism. You know, <laughs> It is. I mean, if, if, if socialism is the taint you can't abide by, then get your checkbook out, write a check to the hospital, write a check to the doctor, and shut the fuck up. You know, and the fact that this is actually a semantic argument, you know, when you say, okay, we're going to do what we're doing for your, for your law firm, but we're going to do it for 300 million Americans. And we're going to make it affordable for everybody that way. And yes, it means that you're going to be paying for the other guys in the society the same way you pay for the other guys in the law firm. Their eyes glaze. You know, they don't want to hear it. It's too much. Too much to contemplate the idea that we might all, that the whole country might be actually connected. So I'm astonished that at this late date, I'm standing here and I'm saying, we might want to go back for this guy Marx that we were laughing at. If not for his prescriptions, no, you know, I, I don't see a state-run economy being viable ever again. Then at least for his depiction of what is possible if you don't mitigate the authority of capitalism, if you don't embrace some other values for, for human endeavor. Um, that's got to be something that we leave behind forever, the notion that this, thing, this tool is more than what it is. And that's what The Wire was about, basically. It was about people who were worthless and who were no longer necessary, as maybe 10 or 15% of my country is no longer necessary to the operation of the economy. It was about them trying to solve, uh, for lack of a better term, an existential crisis. Um, in their uh, irrelevance, their economic irrelevance, uh, they were nonetheless still on the ground, occupying this place called Baltimore. And they were going to have to uh, endure somehow. And that's the, that's the, the great horror show, is... is what are we going to do with all these people that we've managed to marginalize? It's kind of interesting when it was, it was only race, you know, when you could do this on the basis of people's racial fears. And it was just the black and brown people in American cities who had the higher rates of unemployment and the higher rates of addiction and uh, were marginalized and who had the, had the shitty school systems and the lack of opportunity. Kind of interesting in this last recession to see the economy shrug and start to throw white, middle-class people into the same boat so that they became vulnerable to the drug war, say, from methamphetamine, or they became unable to qualify for college loans, or they became, uh, their unemployment started running out. Um, and all of a sudden, uh, a certain faith in, in, the, in the economic engine and in the economic authority of Wall Street and of the market logic started to fall away from people. And they realized, you know, it's not just about race. It's about, it's about something even more terrifying. It's about class, you know. Are you at the top of the wave or are you, or, or are you, or are you at the bottom? And so uh, how does it get better? Uh, I mean, well, I think we, you know, in, in 1932 it got better because they dealt the cards again. And there was a communal logic that said, 
nobody's going to get left behind. We're going to figure this out. We're going to get the banks open. You know, from, from the depths of that depression, certain social compact was made between worker, between labor and capital that actually allowed people to have some hope. We're either going to do that in some practical way when things get bad enough and start walking back the last 30 years, or we're going to keep going the way we're going, at which point there's going to be enough people standing on the outside of this mess that somebody's going to pick up a brick. Because, you know, when people get to the end, there's always the brick. Um, that's, I hope, we've, I hope we go for the first, but I'm losing, I'm losing faith. Um, the other thing that was there in 1932 that isn't there now is, in 1932, some element of the popular will could be expressed through the electoral process in my country. The last job of capitalism, having won all the battles against labor, having acquired the ultimate authority, almost the ultimate moral authority over what's a good idea or what's not, or what's valued and what's not, the last journey for capital in my country has been to buy the electoral process, the one venue for reform that remained to Americans. Uh, Citizens United, decisions such as that, have basically, you know, in my country, everybody was very upset to hear that corporations were people. That part didn't bother me. Uh, you know, corporations are under the law people. That's why, that's why you incorporate, to give your company uh, the legal standing of, of an individual. That's always been true under the law. No, the part of Citizens United that scared the shit out of me was money is speech. That was the part of the equation that I thought was incredibly dark and incredibly vile. And ultimately, right now, capital is, has effectively purchased the government. And you witnessed it, uh, with, again, with the healthcare uh, debacle, in terms of the $450 million that was heaved into Congress, the most broken part of my government, in order that the popular will never actually uh, emerge in any of that legislative process. So I don't know what we do if we can't actually control the representative government that we claim uh, uh, will manifest the popular will. Even if we all start having the same sentiments that I'm arguing for now, I'm not sure we can affect them anymore in the same way that we could uh, at, at, the, at the rise of the Great Depression. So maybe it will be the brick, but I hope not. Um, and on that happy note, because <laughs> I, I like nothing more than to bring a room like this down, um, I guess we'll just go to questions, and you can all ask me about, you know, about Omar and, you know. <laughs> you know. But again... Uh, because, because I'm from Baltimore and I never leave a man behind. Uh, the shoes are from Dan Brothers on South Charles Street. Uh, two-tone wingtips. And they are, um, they are what every righteous Baltimore numbers runner would have worn in 1955. So. Okay. I like that after all of that, you basically ended on a commercial. Right. Uh, which seemed the right spirit. For, well, for Dan Brothers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, capital right. will out. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's not a for-profit company. <laughs> it's, there, it's there for the good of God, you know, I have to say. Uh, 
it was. Uh, I, I felt like there was going to be an uptick there to optimism at one point. But no, you, you really no, no, no. righted the ship. Which is. Have you is. watched the shows? Well, <laughs> you know I have, but uh, but this is what uh, a good. Pu- good place to start, I think, because it seems to me if The Wire is a show about the failure of institutions and is ultimately uh, a show kind of driven by a sensibility of despair, Treme seems to take that argument a step further. Institutions are still failing, but uh, there's something about it that feels more hopeful as a show. The idea that human spirit might prevail, that art, that culture, that community might be enough in the face of this massive institutional failure. Am I just being no, a Pollyanna? You, you've that seized really? on something that was, um, in one sense, Treme, I think, was responsive to the reaction to the wire. Um, I was astonished when, when people started writing about the wire and said, you know, Man, Baltimore's messed up. You know, why don't they move? Why don't they leave? <laughs> why don't they go somewhere? I didn't, because, you know, first of all, we thought we were being allegorical for uh, America, and, you know, as an urban people and, and where we were headed. And we thought what we were writing had relevance um, to other cities. But more than that, uh, we either figure out the city or, or, or we die. Um, you know, I enjoy nothing more than listening to the speeches at a, at a Republican political convention, as you, as you might guess. I find them enormously entertaining. Um, and, uh, you know, a couple cycles ago, we retreated to a lot of talk about uh, the real Americans and, and representing the real Americans in small town values. Uh, if you think about that for a moment, and, and you move past the code, the racial code that is offered there, um, it's an astonishingly absurd notion. You know, small town values are not going to get humanity out of the fix of the, next, of the 21st century. They're not. You know, Karachi had 400,000 people at the end of World War II. It's got something like 25 million now. That's the, you know, Mexico City. I can give you numbers for, every, you know, we're becoming increasingly compacted, increasingly urban uh, in, in areas that are multicultural, uh, that are um, multi-religious, where the, 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 the smell coming down the hall from somebody else's dinner is something that your family never cooked, and the music coming down the hall the other way is something you never heard. And that's either going to, we're either going to triumph in that context or we're going to, we're going to fail in that context. And, and America's no exception. And so to me, the city is, you know, is something that has to be embraced and accepted as the given. And I was astonished at the reaction of the wire. It was almost this, um, like, divorced from reality, like, you know, wow, that's, you know, Baltimore's finished, you know. <laughs> Baltimore's finished. Glad I, leave, glad I live on the outskirts of Cleveland, you know. And, um, and so one of the things we wanted to say with Treme was um, not only is, this, is the city essential, but the American city is... Um, the potential, the human potential there uh, is, is glorious. And nothing says that visually and, and orally, orally with an AU, uh, than, um, than New Orleans, which is, you know, listen, the party's in the street. And it's every day. And, and it's, it's at the drop of a hat. And it's, you know, New, York, New Orleans is a, manuf- is a, is a factory uh, of, of skilled labor that, that manufactures moments. 
It's an astonishing place. It's very different from the rest of, uh, of America, but at the same time, very American. And so we wanted to sort of talk about that place after the storm. And, and, its own, and, and it was a place where all of the institutional problems were the same as we depicted in Baltimore. It's, you know, one of the worst-run cities in America, one of the most corrupt cities, one of the most violent cities. Uh, but it also has given the world and itself such gifts, you know. Uh, uh, African-American music is probably, if America disappears tomorrow and people are arguing over its legacy, the thing that will win out for sure is African-American music. Something that couldn't have happened anywhere else in the world. Had to happen but as an accident of history in my country, it's our greatest export. You know, wherever you go in the world, it's on the jukebox. You know, from, from blues to, to, to jazz to hip-hop. Uh, it's gone the whole world around, and, and it, it keeps regenerating itself. It's astonishing. And it happened in eight square blocks in New Orleans. Uh, that's where it's from. So that's what we wanted to... We wanted to deliver that and basically say, you know, what are you talking about? they got to go somewhere else. But uh, even a line like, won't bow, don't know how, the characters in The Wire, it seems to me, never had a choice as to whether they would bow or not. They were made to bow by a society with its boot on their necks. Yeah. It, what's the different sensibility there? Are you, you know, is that greater optimism on your part in human spirit or well, is it the difference of the cities? No, I mean, New Orleans still has all the same problems. You know, if you look at the... If you look at where New Orleans is at, um, they've not solved any of the systemic problems that they have to address in order in order to have uh, in, in order to resolve the same things we were dealing with in the wire. But the one thing that does work in New Orleans that it has that was an incredible resource. The only thing that did work was the culture. The culture came back. Um, Primarily because people who live there couldn't imagine living anywhere else. You know, they couldn't eat the food in Oklahoma City. They couldn't dance down the street in Baton Rouge. You know, they, it was like in New Orleans before the storm, 70% of the people uh, who lived there were born there. For America, which is a very transitive uh, society, that's, an, that's a very high percentage. So we were trying to say something about the culture. You know, I'm proud to be. I live in Baltimore. I, I live in both places, but I live in Baltimore still, and that's my main address. And it never occurred to me that I wasn't vested in the city. I could take it apart and critique it and, and argue with it and be frustrated with it, but I live there, and, and, and so do all my friends, and so do all my neighbors. And so I was. There was a little part of me that wanted to say, this piece, the wire, and all of the work that we're doing is not an argument against the American city or not. Or it's certainly not a libertarian notion that institutions can fail and therefore we don't need institutions. You know, the solution is not no government. That's, that's you know, not in this day and age. There's just too much at stake. And certainly the solution isn't bad government. The only solution is to make government better, is, is to actually engage. It's, it's either representative democracy. It's either your government... Or it's not. If it's not, then you've got a problem more fundamental than anything. But if it is your government and it's failing and its institutions are failing, that's a call to arms to engage. Not to fold your arms and say, uh, you know, uh, the way of all flesh. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's a futile 
political stance. So I was, there was a little part of me that watched the, 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 the sort of back-ended sneer at, at what the wire seemed to represent in the part of some people who were ready to write the American city off and wanted to say, no, 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 we, 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 we're going to, we either make this work or, or we're, we're in much worse trouble than you think. But anyone who watched it after Series 3 and watched Tommy Carcetti's trajectory uh, might reasonably think you're sceptical about that democratic process and those political processes. I have, I have a lot of scepticism, but um, every four years they have an election and every four years I vote. There's usually one guy who's less worse than the other. And, and it matters, you know. By the way, great bumper sticker in, from Louisiana. Uh, at one point, one of the most hopelessly corrupt governors in the state, uh, Edwin Edwards, was running against uh, the former head and, and still presumptive racist, David Duke. And bumper stickers started appearing all over Orleans Parish that said, you know, vote for the crook. It matters. <laughs> so, you know, therein lies uh, the beauty of democracy. Um, I think that uh, there's a lot of reform. Again, getting the money out of politics uh, is going to be a long, hard journey. And I think people are going to have to get more and more disgusted uh, before any, anything is achieved there. But that's part of it. And then I've become a believer in term limits. The idea that nobody's going to ever do anything good unless they see the, uh, unless they know the end is coming, coming for them regardless. So I, I didn't used to believe that. I used to believe, you know, you reward expertise, and if people are governing well, you, you send them back to office. But now I've started to believe the opposite, which is that in order to make people govern well, you tell them that there is no back end on this at a certain point. Maybe even make the terms longer. You're mayor for six years. We're not going to hold, you know, not for four. Yeah. You, you, get one, you get one term of six, so you might as well, you know, you're never running for re-election again. Do what you think is right. Lead. You know, take the hard decision. There's, there's ways in which this representative democracy can be reformed if we have the stomach for it. But, you know, right now we don't. Um, probably the first thing I read by you uh, uh, that gave me a very acute sense of the nature of inequality mm -hmm. in America and Baltimore uh, was homicide a year on the killing streets. And in particular, I'm thinking about the notion of a Red Bull and the way in which you wrote about that as this kind of crystal clear indication that even in death for Americans, some people mattered and other people oh, yeah. didn't. Um, can you, for, for those in the audience, can you talk a bit about, uh, as a crime reporter on that beat? Um, you always sensed it. Well, listen, let me take the history of my newspaper. I went to work for the Baltimore Sun. It was a very old gray lady in its day, always um, less than the some of its parts. We always had a lot more talent that seemed to actually get into the paper. Um, but, uh, you know, it used to be said, you know, very accurate because it was written by accountants and with that kind of style. And that was, you know, that it was, it was um, but it was certainly one of the top 15, top 15 papers in the country. Um, but only a generation earlier from when I became the police reporter, and this is in Russell Baker's books, if you've ever read his memoirs, which are beautiful, growing up and, and the good times. He, he, he was the, the New York Times columnist 
Uh, he won the Pulitzer Prize for growing up, which was about his childhood in Baltimore until he became a reporter at The Sun. Uh, even in his day, which would have been the, the, into the 50s, it used to say, you know, so-and-so, Joe Dokes of the 1400 block of North Durham Street, comma, a Negro, comma, was murdered, which was code for, you don't need to worry about this. You know, it's in the paper because we're the paper of record, but, you know, misdemeanor homicide, don't worry about it. Um, to have that occur even into the late 50s, as the culture of the newspaper said something. And the city really functions, again, the schizophrenia of America. If you're, if you're white and you're killed three blocks from the Hopkins campus, all the detectives in Baltimore are going to be called in to do everything possible to solve that murder for the sake of Hopkins and reassuring that institution, uh, college, for the sake of reassuring all of uh, the Homewood area, uh, or, or, or the Homewood area um, where the murder happened, which is a middle-class area where a lot of faculty live, uh, and for assuring tourists. and, and every, the, the city ceases to be viable at the point at which the tax base gets scared and runs. So there's actually, like if you're running the city, if you're the mayor, these are just elemental truths. They may not be what you'd like to admit out loud, but it's just true. You know, on the other hand, if you're an 18-year-old kid shot to death in the 2400 block of Edmondson Avenue, uh, where somebody is shot to death once a month, whether they need it or not, um, you know, you're going to get one detective. He's going to give shake the case for a couple of days. So the big cases were called red balls. It's actually a World War II term. For, uh, it's a logistical term. But it, it managed to seep down to the Baltimore homicide unit. And to see a red ball happen, and then to watch the other cases get dropped, because this case has to be solved, and solved quickly. There's a murder in the Inner Harbor. Jesus, you know, the mayor's on the phone. He's, you know, solve it yesterday. Um, that, that really speaks to these sort of two cities living side by side, where the stakes have been made, you know, very different. Um, you can understand it from a practical point of view of, of, of what happens if you don't solve the red ball and, and what you create as a, as a sort of a downward dynamic and trajectory for the city. But there is something really quite ugly about it, isn't there? Mm. Yeah. yeah, quite extraordinary. It, you, from a very young age, from 12, 13, you knew you wanted to be a newspaper man. How much it's sad, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Some boys grow up with ambition. <laughs> Are you still a newspaper man? No. At some point I realized I was making television for longer than I'd been in newspapers, and I said it's time to, time to no longer uh, affix that title to yourself. Um, but I still have the sensibility of wanting to do that job. I'm just in the wrong medium. So it, it makes me make the television I make, which doesn't quite work. It works in the sense that maybe people find the show's you know, it's my fondest hope that people three, four years from now will be finding Tremaine going, oh, this didn't suck, you know. Um, but, because <clears throat> that's what happened with The Wire. You know, nobody, nobody watched this when we were on the air. Nobody watched Generation Kill when it was on the air. And so, uh, I've, uh, I'm not sure I'm a good fit because I'm, I'm, I'm not really interested in making entertainment. I know it has to be entertaining 
and it has to draw people, and the characters have to be worthy. And I, I know, I know, I'm, I know what the form is, but if at the end of the day I've just entertained you, and there hasn't been an argument within the piece, then I've then I've, you know, I've shamed myself in front of my father's ghost. You know, he was my father was a, a guy who loved newspapers and magazines, and we argued as sport. Um, the whole family, we would argue at the dinner table about politics, about economics, sociology. It, it was not, the arguments were not bad, they were delightful. Um, but that's the idea that, you know, you would come out of that household and say, I really want to make television shows and have people, you know, enjoy them. Uh, you know, you're, you're out of the will, you know. That, do you think that change came about because of a change in your or a change in newspapers? Change in newspapers. But it wasn't the change that everyone's feeling now. Everyone's, what people are feeling now is the internet has finally eviscerated the delivery system and, and newspapers are shedding talent at, a, at an incredible rate. I left newspapers in 95 when the internet was not a factor yet, but newspapers were shedding talent at an incredible rate for a very different reason, which is, like every other American industry, uh, newspapers went to Wall Street. Uh, we, were, we were operated in chain. You know, I started a, a paper that was family-owned in Baltimore, run by Baltimoreans, for Baltimoreans. Um, idiosyncratic in its ways, had its problems. But um, then one moment we were owned by the L.A. Times uh, chain, and then they were bought by the Chicago Tribune chain. And with all these newspapers gathered together in a, in a corporation, they went to Wall Street and said, what do we have to do to make your number? And get our bonuses, and you know, and, and go retire, and go to the golf course at Hilton Head for the rest of our lives, and tell stories about how we used to be newspapermen. How do we do that? And they said, "Well, you want to put out a, the way to do this is put out a shittier newspaper. We can make a lot more money putting out bad newspapers than we can good newspapers. So get rid of about twenty percent of your staff, and about twenty percent of your news hole, and cover about twenty percent less, and fill it up with." wire copy and, and do less and make more money. And it worked brilliantly all through the 90s. Uh, and and then, so they continue. I was the third buyout of about 80 reporters, but a total of about 200 left the paper before the internet. So they were, they were eviscerating their own product. They were, had contempt for their own product even before the internet raised its head. By the time the internet came around, these the champions of this industry who had such contempt for their own product, you literally heard them saying stuff like, well, the kids, they surf the web, you see. And they're going to surf the web and they're going to find our website and they're going to they're decide they like newspapers and then they're going to buy the newspaper. <laughs> and it's like, you know, okay. So, That's a pretty I'm, sound business plan. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly unhappy that I took the buyout, but... Um, and, and, and then finally, when they realized that they let the horse, that that was the product, the internet, you know, the internet was the future and that was the product. And, you know, when they finally realized that, they looked around the newsroom and, the, and what they had to sell online and they needed to sell it. You know, if you don't, if you, the product doesn't have, nobody's buying it, it's not a product. You know, they tell you that in business classes in community college. But if, if you can't sell it for anything, then you don't have a product. Well, they couldn't sell the advertising because a page hit is not 
is not a display ad on a, on a page that somebody's holding. The, the, the rates can't be the same and weren't the same. And they couldn't sell the circular, they couldn't sell an online subscription because they'd walked 60% of the reporters out of the newsroom. They no longer had a unique product that was worth, that they were comfortable offering for pay, for subscription. So it was just, all they did was bleed more for the next generation. So, I, you know, I'd sold a book to Barry Levinson and he made a TV show out of it and he asked me if I, if I wanted to try to write a script and, and I tried and, and so I went there thinking, well, this is, I'll do this for a little while while I finish the second book and then I'll go to a better newspaper. And at some point I looked around and there was no, you know, I was, I guess what I'm saying is there was no plan. But as they had, they had no plan for newspapers and I had no plan for TV, so it all worked out. Um, that tension between the, the newspaper man impulse uh, still being present when you make television and the need to entertain, it seems to me that played out in The Wire repeatedly. There's a wonderful scene in series three where Bunk and Omar, Bunk berates Omar because he's a hero, because children play at being Omar in the street. And it seems to me there's an extraordinary tension in there that you've created this character who is a hero. You referenced him before. The audience is delighted to hear Omar's name. I nearly whistled when I came out on stage earlier. He's this hero. But you resist easy heroes and villains in your work. Yeah, I'm not interested in good and evil. I I think that's been done to death uh, and done well and done better than I can probably do it. Um, You know, if if you're... uh, if you're looking for that in the wire, it's always it's going to confound you a little bit. I'm interested in systems. I'm interested in, in process. I believe in process. I believe that um, at this point, uh, life on this planet is so complicated that we've got to get process right, and it's a very delicate thing. And, you know, Bill Zorzi, one of the writers, uh, covered government for a long time, and he said to me years ago, we were still reporters, he said, it's, it's amazing to me people think bureaucrat is a dirty word. Like bureaucrats, you know, it's never used in the affirmative. It's always a, it's always a pejorative. And and the truth is, I've known a lot of really good bureaucrats who were, you know, exceptionally functional at what they had to do and what had to get done every day in the city that I covered or in the state that I covered. And they were conscientious and they weren't corrupt and they weren't indifferent, um, but they were bureaucrats, uh, you know. And you know what? There had to be a bureau there. And so we looked upon like the police department or, or we were not interested in people who were completely demonically evil or people who were larger than life. We were interested in, in, in quotidian reality and trying to, trying to and, and yes, you had to drag a story that had some, some heat onto the, onto, onto stage and, and then resolve it within the context of it. But we always were conscious of trying to do it within within the existing plausible bureaucracy. That, that process really interested in us, and, and, it, and institutions really interested in us. In a second, I'm going to throw to the audience for questions. I mention this now so that you can make your way to microphones and summon up your courage. I'm just going to ask one more thing before that. I'm interested you now blog occasionally, um, and it seems to me that's an extremely... I, I, I believe the term is vent. I vent occasionally. It's angry blogging. It's angry blogging. Um, but it's a very different relationship with an audience and a readership than the one that you've had in the past. Um, I wanted to ask two questions about it. One, 
your blog's called The Audacity of Despair. I'm curious about whether you think despair is more audacious than hope. Um, and then the, the second part is, do you embrace this relationship with your audience or do you resent it? You mean on the blog? Yeah. Um, well, the title actually uh, was given to me by a very dishonest profile uh, in, in the Atlantic magazine. Uh, I don't need to go into the profile, but it was written with a particular purpose. It was a, it was a, a manufactured job to, uh, by somebody who was... Uh, he had his reasons. Um, and uh, it, it, I, look, I re- looked at the headline and I just had to laugh. It made me, it made me smile at the... Um, you know, it came out, that article probably came out right after Obama's uh, autobiography. And uh, I sort of embraced it. I, you know, he meant it in a different way, but, but on, 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 on some level, I think what I always wanted to be, what I started getting interested in when I was a reporter was uh, not, not simply telling a, a story, but getting into the idea of where the argument has to be. And what's worth arguing over, and what isn't fixed, and if you do that enough, um, you start to take on the tone of of despair. Um, and I never really felt despair as a reporter. I mean, you know, and I don't feel it in my life. I, you know, I go home, I watch the game like everybody else, I play with my kids. You know, life is life. But um, if you're going to write, if you're going to spend, you know, half a year reporting on an issue, make sure it's an actual issue. Make sure it's something that isn't. A little bit intractable, you know. If it's easily solved, you know, it probably doesn't need you. It's probably it's self-evident without 200 column inches and a four-part series and a series of you know. So my my attitude has always been, you know, of course you're writing about the bad stuff. Um, the relationship with the blog, I'll say this: uh, one of the things that I at, at my parents' dinner table that we were taught very early were sort of the, uh, the the logical fallacies, rhetoric. They don't teach it in school anymore in America. They really should. But we 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 learned it the hard way at our at our at our at our parents' heels. And um, the ad hominem, the appeal to pity, equivocation fallacies. You know, when you when you don't argue honestly, um, nothing good can come from it. So I've. I've taken to posting something, uh, sort of the premise of an argument, and then the people who sign on to argue, some of them are very astute about advancing the argument. And sometimes they change my mind or sometimes not, but, but, but they advance the argument in terms of other considerations, and, and they're always within the framework of, of trying not to name call, you know, trying not to do all the things that the Internet does so well and so disastrously for human discourse. And then there's the other people who think they're on like the Fox website and they're just supposed to call names and be ideological and, and, and sneer. And you sort of have to wean them out or, or you, sometimes you can grow them up. So it's been sort of a social experiment for me of like, okay, you're back and you're really trying. I can tell, you know, because you've managed not to call somebody a name in three sentences. Let's, let's see if we can bring you a little... Fr- so there's been a little bit of, can we make this into a site that is sort of a community where we actually argue legitimately. You know, I, I, I love argument. I th- again, I, argument's not a bad thing. Argument in the writer's room of these shows always made it better, not worse. So I tried to do that with the blog. It's really time-consuming, 
and you know when I have write when I have real writing to do uh, uh, for the day job, it sits fallow for months. Um, but um, it's been sort of a little, a little experiment in what the internet is. I'm not sure it's been entirely successful, but. Well, let's see if anyone wants to argue with you this evening. Uh, please don't. That wasn't an yeah. invitation. Uh, to be rude. Listen, and, uh, and name calling in this in this room is perfectly acceptable. And, and and don't forget, once again, David is on an HBO contract, so he can swear at you if you're an idiot. Um, <laughs> we're going to start in the back corner over there. Uh, as long as I'm allowed to swear back. Um, so you mentioned how you kind of just fell into television. Um, and now you mentioned you've done a few experiments with your blog. Um, is there any um, other mediums that you'd be um, interested in sort of um, testing the waters in? Interesting you should say that. Um, I'm interested in the theater. Um, I don't have the blocking down. You know, one of the greatest crutches in all of film writing is the phrase cut to. You know, cut to. Cut to is beautiful. Um, and that doesn't exist in the theater, so the, the, the pacing and, and the, and the, uh, the uh, blocking of a play is kind of elusive for me, but I've been working in that, and I've turned in one, uh, this is going to make you laugh, but I've turned in a musical. Um, <laughs> I know, it's, it just sounds so funny, I love to say it. But it, 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 uh, I wrote the play, I didn't write the music, it involves, you know the, the band The Pogues, the Irish band? Irish traditional punk band, um, using their uh, music uh, for a, uh, a shot at a musical in New York, something I've been working on with um, uh, a director in, uh, in Galway, um, Gary Hines, very good director of The Druid. And uh, it's, the, the stage is really fascinating to me because what works in film uh, will, it can't work on the stage and what works on the stage can't work in film. And, it's just, it, it, the, it's maybe just something to do that I haven't done, but I'm getting into it. So, stage. Thank you. I'm going to turn 360. Yes, luckily there is someone waiting there, so that's a good thing. Hi. Um, so, I'm an American, and um, I'm actually studying political science, and I'm actually... Um, there was an interview recently with Russell Brand, uh, who's... A comedian, I know, but um, it's become incredibly popular with sort of my demographic in America where he talks about, you know, the system being broken and he ends on this note of he doesn't vote, he's never voted, and that's sort of become, I think, representative of what a lot of young Americans are feeling. And mm -hmm. like you said, there's no silver bullet to sort of fix the system, but when the system is so broken, how do you think that we can go about participating? I, I enjoyed uh, Russell Brand's uh, diatribe. I thought, I thought there, there's some legitimacy to saying, I'm not going to play this game anymore, and you've rigged the game. And the game really is rigged. I'm not suggesting otherwise. Maybe my voting is just residual in the sense of, um, I do know that it can get worse, worse faster. And the, the moment that this became clear to me was, I remember being in, I was in South Africa with David Mills in 2000 when um, uh, George W. Bush was elected president. And a South African, a very astute South African, said to me, I can't believe your country elected this moron to be president. 
And I said, well, you know, it's a centrist country and, and, and the way the government works, nobody can really take it too far to one side or the other. And, you know, he'll be mitigated by this and Congress that. And, you know, he, and, you know, he doesn't have a mandate. I had a bunch of reasons. And then 911. And I think you had somebody who was utterly empowered, um, not merely to respond in, in meaningful ways to 911 that probably had to happen with regard to uh, Afghanistan and, and, the, and the initial pursuit of, of al-Qaeda, al- but wars of choice and, 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 and the tragedy of Iraq. And I, I remember thinking to myself, I wish I could find that person in South Africa from that cocktail party and just apologize. Because <laughs> well, just when you think that you know, it, the election can't matter and that continuing to play this game only validates it, they'll confound you by, by, by creating a dynamic where there really is a, a difference. Um, but that said, I don't think things can get better. I don't think we can recognize our problems or solve them. Um, and if, I, if, I could, if I could fix one thing to make this, get the money out of politics. Make politics. There are no elections that are anything but publicly financed. You know, it's basically the legal women voters. We're going to meet six times. You're going to hear them all. You're going to present position papers. They're going to have, um, you know, three debates before uh, Super Tuesday, three debates. You know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to hear what these guys have to say, and we're going to vote for the best guy. Um, if, if American politics, if you didn't have to purchase elections, and elections had to be actually argued as a marketplace of ideas, we'd have a shot. Everything else might resolve itself. Um, with better leadership and, and also with the idea that you know, you're not trying to perpetuate yourself indefinitely you have a, 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 you have a, you have a certain number of years try to fix the problems if you can because you, know, you ain't getting any more um, that might be a start but I, I'm, I, I can't criticize anybody like Brand for saying I'm sorry I'm not playing because there's an awful lot of reason to, to have contempt for the way the political system is arraying itself Another British comedian, Robert Webb, wrote a really interesting response where he made the point, amongst other things, that if you take yourself out of the process, then the political classes don't need to court you anymore. They're only going to court the people who are still engaged, and disengagement uh, is a fraught solution. But thank you. I I hate being courted by those guys, though. (laughs) Makes you feel dirty? (laughs) Exactly. I want you to make a musical about Clay Davis. That I would go to. (laughs) Can I go over here? Um, You talked about the the sort of socialist ideals, the social uh, compact that you've suggested. If that were to be taken on, it would obviously need greater government involvement, greater government expenditure in the US. Given the debts currently in the states of however many trillion it is and rising... Uh, By the way, that was the greatest paper cup Foley ever. (laughs) That was like, you know, like when you press the button for, I want a paper cup sound now. (laughs) That was just amazing. They're recording. You've got it all. That's all right. Um, Yeah, it it would need a greater government expenditure. And given the huge debt that the U.S. is currently in, even if the people were to choose that policy direction, do you think there's an appetite for a greater debt at this stage? There's no appetite for spending money on anyone other than yourself. Uh, and that's why libertarianism has, has, has become, has been graduated to a sense of, you know, they've managed to make 
you know, greed into a political philosophy. But um, the truth is, we're spending more money on health care now, having not achieved a public health care system. It's not really about acquiring new expenditures that are going to dwarf the, the current dynamic. It's about, you know, there are literally people who think they're not paying and society isn't paying when, you know, huge numbers of uninsured people wash up at city emergency rooms every night across, across America and don't have money or insurance to pay their medical bills. They're still treated. They're, you know, they're still given treatment. It's, by the way, it's not preventative treatment. It's not the treatment that might result in long-term benefit for, the, for health conditions. But nobody gets turned away. It's just passed on to the consumers who are getting insurance. Like, it, it literally comes down to the, the drug war. The, the vast treasure that we've wasted trying to uh, interdict drugs, trying to uh, incarcerate our way out of the drug problem. Give me that money. I don't need to spend any more money on, on uh, job training, on re, 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 uh, reconnecting those inner city neighborhoods to the American economy. Just give me the money you're wasting on the drug war and let me spend it on the, the equivalent of the CCC programs or, or the um, you know, Civilian Conservation Corps or, uh, or the NRA, you know, the, 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 the New Deal programs that put everybody back to work in a civic way. Just give me that money. I don't need a dollar more than what you're wasting right now on, on stuff that is basically just uh, turning one, one class of Americans against another, you know, brutalizing one America. I mean, you know, it's astonishing. And, and, and what we're doing now in terms of the, uh, the, um, the prison industrial complex being privatized, you know, Really, this is the way you, you're structuring an economy so that these guys are going to Wall Street and saying, you know, we can give you 8% profit uh, on, on a product that's incarcerating other Americans. How do you do that except to lock up 8% more Americans, you know? And then, you know, because chutzpah is in, you know, is in no short supply, taking the profit and going and hiring lobbyists to go to state legislators and say, can we get some more three strikes laws against nonviolent drug offenders? Or, or can we get more incarceration of uh, illegal immigrants prior to deportation? Because that's their growth industry. The cynicism of that, just give me the money you're wasting by trying to avoid doing anything with a third of the country and reincorporating them into, into, into the... So I actually don't think... I think the idea of we're going to be spending vast sums... On, on, on the welfare state, uh, I think that's really overstated. And there's one other thing about that that I know for certain. You give somebody an AFDC check or, 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 or a WIC check, or um, I'm speaking of American nutritional programs or, or, or food stamps, you give that money at the first of the month, it's going back in the economy. Whereas you give a guy like me a tax break, you know, uh, I don't need it, you know. It's going into the bank. It, you know, or it's, you know, with me, I might actually do something honorable with it, you know, guilt, Jewish guilt, but, um, <laughs> but with a lot of people, you know, you give, you give my class of people, you give them 1%, a tax break, it's not going back in the economy. 
So I'm a little less worried about the, you know, I'm a, I'm a Keynesian. I believe, you know, give people money to, to dig holes and bury money, and you're better off than, than, than not. So. I suspect you're going to spend the money on shoes, but otherwise I accept what you're saying. Well, I already own these, so there's, you're done. there's no place to go but down. We are only going to have time for three more questions. I mentioned that to the people who are sixth or seventh in a queue for a question, just as a point of interest. We're going to go over here. Hi, David. That was brutal. Yeah, hi. Hey, David. Um, so you're a journalist and, you know, you have a TV show, um, but, you know, is that enough just commenting on society? Don't you want to spend the money yourself? Don't you want to, you know, you say, give me the money. Aren't you going to be, you know, do you want to run for office? Do you want to make what? the change yourself? Run for office? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I wish I had that Mencken quote. Uh, do you guys know who Mencken was? Mm. Yeah, Mencken was the most famous reporter to come out of my newspaper. Um, Henry Mencken. He was the, uh, an iconoclast of the 30s. And he basically said, no report, reporters live the life of kings and no reporter would ever descend to being an elected official. <laughs> having, having had the joy of doing the job of covering them and holding them in grand contempt regardless of who's elected or what they do. I'm not getting his quotes exactly right, but, you know, he, he, he was so dismissive of the idea that any journalist would. Uh, and then I remember uh, Warren Harding, I think, uh, was, a, was a newspaper publisher who had worked his way up from a reporter and became president of the United States. And, oh, Mencken had some choice words for him, for, for, for that descent, that career descent. No, I, I'm a storyteller. Uh, I've, I loved... Uh, newspapers when I was young and I loved the idea of and like my dad would show me guys who you know he loved you know uh, Haywood Brune or in the New York papers or, um, uh, or Swope or, or uh, Damon Runyon and he'd say you know look at what this guy did. look at how they look at look at old time magazine the way they ran the sentences backwards you know look at this the way this guy overuses the Jaron lead you know this is how my father talked to me so uh, this was, you know, the idea of this, this, the storytelling and its mechanisms, this is what I love to do and what I train to do. And then the film thing was an accident, but it's just another medium that, that has different rules. But I'm not, I, you know, I'm not a, uh, uh, that, that's enough. That's, it's hard enough to do that conscientiously, you know? It's like, you know, that can go wrong if you don't pay enough attention to it, so... Thanks. Uh, you've spoken about the New Deal and uh, you know, that period in American politics and the trade unions, and I think one of the distinguishing features of that period was the fact that the working class was actually fighting back against the interests of capital, and you know, a lot of Marxists were uh, amongst that mix as well. well. What do you think of the, the latest crop of, of resistance and, and the Occupy movement in particular? Uh, I, listen, I loved Occupy. I wish they had a second act. Um, <laughs> As a dramatist, I recognize it when you only have one act. Um, yeah, listen, it's going to have to get worse before it gets better. And the great failing in the West, I don't think there's anything... I think globalization was inevitable in the sense of um, capital was going to route itself to cheaper labor overseas, which was really the, the fundamental dynamic here. But what would have been better... Uh, for all of us in the West, is if our governments hadn't sold out the notion of labor, hadn't tossed them out of the boat completely. Again, 
Everybody has to lose some battles. Everyone has to win some battles. Um, Labor and classes were going to have to come on board first world economies in China and and India and and around the Pacific Rim and in in Latin America. This was going to have to happen, and it's a good thing. You don't want most of the world living in poverty while the first world, you know, sort of dances around and and ignores it. But wouldn't it have been great if if, if the trade agreements like NAFTA, if, if the trade agreements we were signing... Uh, to enhance globalization of the, of the world economy. Wouldn't it have been great if it gave preference to those countries that, were, that, that, that encouraged trade unionism, that encouraged workers' rights, that encouraged um, worker safety, if it gave preference to those countries, if it actually created incentives as opposed to remaining indifferent and, in neutral, and, and neutral to, to, to the idea that labor needs to win some battles? The fact that they were tossed out of the boat so completely... Um, is, I think, a great tragedy. So I think it's going to get worse before it's going to get better. And one of the things that's going to have to, have to happen is workers in, in, in the, these places that are being, uh, that are, you know, seeing their lives marginally improved but are extremely vulnerable and are working at a substance, subsistence level are going to have to organize. And that would be a lot easier if, if their governments were amenable to the idea of trade unionism. But we're going to have to fight the same... The 20th century's battle is going to have to be fought all over again. Either that or... Either that or these corporations are going to have to suddenly become benign and say, you know what? We don't need to maximize our profits. We can make a little less. We're still making money. We, we, let's give some of this back unilaterally. I'm more inclined to believe the first thing's going to happen. That was the second last question, which for fans of The Wire we know means it was written by George Pelicanos and it was quite <laughs> distressing in content. Uh, we've got time for one more up the back here. That was very Thank good. You. Hi, I've listened to you talk probably as a citizen of America and I understand where your pessimism comes from. <laughs> I'm wondering whether if you think of yourself as a citizen of the world you are equally more or less pessimistic. So at one extreme, do you see America perhaps dragging the rest of the Western world or even the whole world along the path it appears to be on? Or at the other, does America become a cautionary tale that helps the other 95% of the world dodge a bullet? Uh, I, I, you know, it's a very good question. Um, I'm very cautious about not speaking or trying not to speak about Stuff I don't know. And, uh, like, for example, I'm, you know, I, I just got to Australia a couple days ago. And uh, already I was in an interview uh, uh, yesterday with somebody from The Guardian. And they asked me about Queensland and, and, and the, the, I can't say bikey. I can't. It's the bikers. <laughs> You're not right. Bikey. If I can do one thing for your country, lose the term bikey. It's, <laughs> it's, it's biker. They're bikers. And, um, and uh, I was asked about uh, some of the laws that had been passed, and, and they struck me as being uh, anti-democratic. Certainly the law that was referenced was, was the one about uh, not being obliged to make a statement against yourself or... Or, if, if, or make a statement or you could be charged that you were obliged to talk to law enforcement um, which goes contrary to, to, to the constitutional logic under which I was raised and, and certainly brings up very bad periods in American history where when we walked away from that 
um, constitutional protection. We did very bad things to ourselves. Um, so I said, that sounds terrible. That sounds like tyranny. That's, that's, that's no good. Um, and then I saw it the next day as like, you know, like David Simon has landed on the plane and told us how to run. So there's a little bit of like hesitancy for me to say, you know, the American has landed to tell you what to do and what not to do. I can only tell you what doesn't work in my country and what does work. And I think some of the things should be similar. Um, you know, certain things, certain economic principles should work. Certain political things we know are more viable than others, regardless of... But it, it is a very delicate thing. I can only tell you that, that if you're doing the exact same thing you saw America do and it didn't work, you know, that's, that's, you know, in 12-step groups, they tell you, if you keep making the same mistake and expecting a different outcome, you know, that's addiction. So maybe there is a time to look to, to what, you know, if you guys are starting up with prisons for profit, stop. You know, we put 2.3 million of us into prison. And when I started... The federal prison population was 35% violent offender. It's now 7%. They're less violent than ever before. It's a tragedy that anybody would look at America and say, we've got to let the prison industry um, be privatized. Is astonishing. The evidence is in. It's a tragedy. That anybody would think there was a plausible means of, of uh, creating a drug prohibition that won't create a permanent underclass and a permanent underground economy after watching America is, is astonishing to me. And yet, it's amazing the number of, of countries that, you know, we, we've convinced Mexico to fight the drug war, and it's turned the northern states of Mexico into an abattoir. 40,000, 50,000 dead lying in the streets because of our demand, because Americans want to pretend to a drug prohibition that we can't resolve and also take drugs. That's, we're, so, we're so brave in our drug war, we're willing to fight to the last Mexican. That's, 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 that's the courage of my country. That anybody would, would, would follow us down this path is to me astonishing, but hey, for that first vote, moment of caution, maybe I don't know something about Australia. Maybe you guys will figure it out as we didn't. Maybe you guys know how to run a for-profit prison. Maybe you guys know how to uh, deal with something as fundamental as the human desire uh, for, for a prohibited substance. I don't know. We've totally got all that solved, and I'll tell you what we worked out uh, in a second, but it's pretty good. You'll like it. Unfortunately, uh, the most dangerous idea in this building is running too far over time, and we are... Uh, out of time. If you didn't get a chance to ask a question, David uh, will be signing out in the foyer. I believe the team at Glee Books uh, still out there burning the midnight oil and you can get something and get it signed. Or you can jump on a plane and come to Melbourne tomorrow and see <laughs> David at the Festival of, ideas, uh, Festival of Dangerous Ideas pop up in Melbourne. But he made the case uh, that in New Orleans it's culture that uh, binds society together and I think we're all uh, the happy recipients of uh, cultural output that does make hope seem not an altogether audacious prospect. Please join me in thanking David Simon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.